0: I was reminded maybe a couple days ago, as I drove down Rosemead, that about three years ago, we lost our sizzlers here in Pico Rivera. That was one of the casualties of, of COVID era. Some of you maybe don't care. Some of you maybe loved it. But I saw the sign that it's now gonna be a Japanese restaurant. I don't know how to pronounce what it's there, and I'm not sure when it's gonna open. But anytime you see a new restaurant or a new store of any kind, it's gonna have good business at least to start because it's something new. I don't know, we have another Japanese restaurant here in Pico Rivera, so people go and they want to figure out what it's all about. But eventually that newness wears off and at that point we get a better picture of whether or not that restaurant will stay open. Are people going to come back In the business world, the goal is always to get people to come back. You have to set your business apart from everyone else who sells the same things. Why should they go to your bookstore? Why should they go to your department store? Why should they buy your product or visit your website? How do you get people to buy your product again and again? That's the question companies are trying to answer. They need something that sets them apart. And so there are people asking the same questions in regard to our churches. What is it that sets the church apart? Believe it or not, that is a very divisive question because you have a very loud voice in contemporary Christianity saying that what keeps people coming back to your church is really going to be the same thing that keeps them going back to a restaurant or a gym or a department store. And what is usually tied to that kind of thinking is that what makes the church separate isn't, is separating the local church from other local churches, but it's not putting at the forefront what separates the church from the rest of the world. In some people's view, a church can only hope to do a better job than the world at providing people with pleasant experiences or uh, helpful services. The biblical picture, the biblical description of the church is something very different. Jesus told the disciples, and this applies to us, you are not of this world. Obviously, because we're a church and because we own a building and because we have services and administrative things to do, there are going to be some administrative practices that align with the way the world does things. But we have to recognize that those things are not essential to the church. They don't make the church what it is. We would be a church without staff and without a building. What makes the church distinct and what ultimately draws people to the church is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul says at the end of Colossians 1, I proclaim Christ. That's why the church is here. We're here to proclaim Christ. We're here to put Jesus on display we want ministries to be effective, but we need to recognize that it's not the flashiness of our ministries that, that ultimately bring people to Christ. We want to be effective as teachers and preachers, but it's not the charisma of any of our elders or teachers that ultimately sets us apart. Ultimately, what makes the church the church is the presentation to the world of Jesus Christ. Paul said, all things are from him and through him and to him. He said, everything is to be done for the glory of our Lord. And that's the great struggle, not just corporately for churches, but individually. That's the struggle of our Christian faith. We want to remain continually focused on Christ in everything that we do. For those of you who are visiting our church today, and anytime we get visitors, those of you who are members need to understand this is why we're here to show people Christ. We're not ultimately here as a business. We're not ultimately here for raising money. We're here as an outpost of heaven here on earth. We recognize that we are sinners and left to ourselves, we are condemned to eternal hell because of our rebellion against a holy and perfect God. That's what all of us deserve. But God in his kindness, in his mercy, 2000 years ago sent his son to do what none of us could do and that is to live a perfect life of obedience and then die on the cross and then on the third day be raised again, satisfying the righteous requirements of God's law. And so now every single person, even before that day looking forward to God's sacrifice or since that day now looking back on Christ's sacrifice, Every single person who bows before Christ, trusts in him, believes fully and only in his death and resurrection for their forgiveness of sin is forgiven, is cleansed, is justified. That is, they're declared righteous by God. They are, in that moment, made a citizen of heaven. That person, when Christ comes, when Christ comes to eternally judge sinners and save those who belong to him, that person will gain entrance into the eternal kingdom of God. That's what the church is about. We live for that day. We proclaim the day that Christ came to save us from our sins on the cross, and we proclaim the day he's coming again to save us eternally. In the meantime, if we belong to Christ, he puts us to work it calls us to serve him and to and to we do that not only in external acts but we do that by helping others follow Christ as well that's what the church is about we preach Christ and in accomplishing that function the bible teaches that the global church is manifested through local churches and in a local church because we're talking about the organization of a church in this letter there are two recognized positions Sometimes we call them offices or officers in the church. We have, first of all, elders. They're also known as overseers or pastors. And then we have, second of all, deacons. And that's our focus today as we finish up this paragraph, 1 Timothy chapter three, verses eight through 13. We're gonna be starting in verse 11. We'll get there in just a little bit. But I told you, deacons is a uniquely religious term. It's dealing with a certain position or office in the church. Much of what I say today, for most of you, I think is just gonna be a, a review, and I hope it's, it's edifying. But we're gonna be talking about deacons, and as we do so this morning, I wanna organize our time under three headings. If you wanna take notes, these are the outline we'll be having. Number one, I wanna briefly review the responsibility of deacons. Number two, I'm gonna continue our discussion regarding the requirements of deacons. And then number three, we're gonna look at the reward of the deacons. That's the outline, the responsibility, the requirements, and the reward. Even though we're talking about deacons and we're looking at the structure of the church, I want you to know that this applies to all of us, though, because these are examples to us. So even if you're not named deacon, you wanna say this is, you wanna understand, this is what Christ wants from me. We're all called to serve Christ. Some people, though, in a church will be named as deacons. So let's start by talking about what that means. What is the responsibility of a deacon? What do they do biblically? Traditionally, you might have all kinds of ideas, but biblically. The Greek word deacon, like I said, simply means servant or minister. It's a reference to a recognized servant in the church, and the Bible doesn't say anything more than that. All we know is that this group of people known as deacons is distinct from the elders. The elders are the recognized leaders and teachers in the church. The deacons then are the recognized servants. There are churches you'll find where deacons uh, function more like a governing board of directors. That is not the picture we get in the Bible. The authority is, is with the elders. The deacons serve. What do they do? Well, in general, in the most general sense, I would say the deacons are responsible to take care of things that help the church accomplish its mission and fulfill its calling, and they allow the pastors to focus on their primary task of teaching the word and praying. You don't have to write that down. You can if you want. But just to show you, what, that's, that's what the deacons are. They're recognized servants. If all of us serve, you could say they're the servants with a capital S, here at First Bilingual, we are going to begin naming deacons. We, we've done it in the past. We haven't done it for, for a while now. But we, we want you to, as a church to, to understand how we plan to proceed, and, and we want to um, make sure we can answer any questions you have. We're not just going to say, well, you know, you're deacon qualified. You're a deacon. You're a deacon. You're a deacon. And that just becomes a badge you wear. You know, until that's removed, or until you die, we don't anticipate having deacons function like a board making decisions. We want to connect deacon, or the title, or the position of deacon, to a responsibility. There's something this person is is in charge of. We don't have a specific timeline for all this. It might happen before the end of the year. It might start start happening. Um, at the beginning of next year. But it's going to be perpetual. As as needs arise and things come up, we can find someone who will be named as a deacon to take care of that task. We want you to be ready for that. In terms of our our bylaws, what what will happen is we will present names to you as a potential deacon. This person is who we're planning to name as a deacon, and we're going to tell you the duties that this person will be fulfilling And then at a members meeting on a Sunday night, we would make that official. It's not a vote because it's not a governing position, but it's an an affirmation of that person. But in the meantime, if there's something about that person or about the the role that you think we elders should know, we want you to come talk to us. Maybe there is something we don't know that, that you know. But again, as we do that, we want you to know that we're not intending deacons to function as a board of directors. You know, These are the deacons. They're, they're separate leaders taking care of some ministry or some, some aspect of the church, some practical aspect in order for us to serve better. Most of the time these people are already going to be leaders of specific areas, they just haven't had the title applied to them and, and, and frankly, I was having a conversation this week and, and thinking you know, if Paul came to 2023, would he even have used the word deacon because it just means a servant. I, I wouldn't fault the church if they said, no, we call them our servants. Okay, the, but there's some recognized position. In most cases, if you name someone as a deacon, what's gonna change? Well, not a whole lot if they're already serving in that place, but there are some benefits doing, to, to doing so. Number one, you're in line with the biblical pattern. Also, it's a way of the leaders recognizing this person for for their work. It sets them aside as an example to others. It also helps the congregation have someone they can go to with any questions or suggestions that are related to whatever area that person is in charge of. So if you decide you come to church, I come to church every week and I just look at the building and it, it hasn't been painted in 20 years. We need to repaint the building. Well, you don't. You could talk to the elders and then we'd have to delegate what that looks like. But if there's someone over the building or things like that, you know who to go to when something needs to be addressed or if you think something's being overlooked. You go to a deacon. They are the recognized servants in the church. With that, then let me move to the second heading, which is the requirements for the deacons. What does it take for someone to be a Deacon. Well, if you notice, we just read the requirements. It has nothing to do with how much this person gives to church. It has nothing to do with how long this person has been in the church. The primary focus is the person's character. If a church is going to appoint someone, if a church is going to give him responsibility in an area, the church needs to make sure it doesn't select the wrong person because much harm will be done. A lot of damage will be done if you place the wrong person in a recognized position. As we saw last time, and we saw it again right now, the focus is character. It's not about necessarily natural or earthly abilities. The focus is their heart, their integrity. A deacon must be someone who represents Christ. He's not gonna do it perfectly, because none of us do. But we don't want someone who's going to taint the name of Christ, particularly, as you saw in verse, verse 8, through immaturity, or deception, or drunkenness, or greed. That's what Paul lists in verse eight. That's not what we want. We want someone who has proven character, and that's what Paul says in verses nine and 10. They hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and they should be tested. They are to be blameless. Well, in talking about the requirements of a deacon, the primary question, and this comes when you get to verse 11, is what about women? Can a woman serve As a deacon, does the Bible or does the Apostle Paul allow for that possibility? Well, unlike the issue of women pastors, I think there's more wiggle room here because the answer isn't as clear as some of us would like. Look at verse 11. If you have an ESV, it says, their wives likewise must be dignified. Mine has a footnote. It says, or wives likewise must, or women likewise must. Other translations say women The difference in translations come because the Greek word for woman or women is the same word for wife or wives. So when we translate it, it's not about how it's used or about the way it's written. We have to look at the context and say, what is the intention here? We have to either translate it or understand it by looking at what we think the author is trying to say. Is Paul intending to talk about women who are gonna serve alongside the deacons or as part of the deacons? Or is he talking about the wives of the deacons? There are a couple things that make this tricky. Not only is it the same Greek word, but there are no additional Greek words. Sometimes, the tr- I think ESV says, uh, verse 11, their wives, that word their, the possessive pronoun, that's not in the Greek. It just says wives or women. It doesn't even say the women. It just says women, likewise, dignified. So I'm gonna discuss some of the features that, In this debate, what gets taken into account, more important than where any of us fall on the issue personally, I will talk about how we plan to move forward as a church, but here's some of the considerations, if you want to help understand this issue, things to think about as you make a decision. The first consideration is the use of this word, gune, which means woman or wife. It's how it's used in the rest of the letter. That's kind of how we would understand words. When you come to a word in the Bible and you're not sure what it means, you look at how else it's used in scripture and you want to look at how else it's used by the same author and if possible, in the same book. Well, that word gune is used nine times in First Timothy. The majority of those are dealing more generally with a woman, but also the immediate use before and after here in verse, 12, uh, uh, in verse 11 is... It gets translated as wife, so in verse 2 and in verse 12, it says that an elder or deacon must be the husband of one wife, so does that mean Paul means to me, should we translate it wife here, or does it mean woman? The majority of the book says says woman, but the immediate connection is wife, you can take a pick for yourself. A second consideration in this debate is Paul's use of the word likewise. So verse 11 says they're wise or the women likewise. Sometimes it's a different phrase, but it's the exact same word used in verse eight. And so people say, well, there's a connection because verses one through seven talk about the elders. Then verse eight says deacons... Likewise, likewise means a new office. Elders is an office in the church. Likewise, deacons, that's an office. So, so in verse 11, when Paul says women or wives, likewise, some say that means he's talking about another office. These women are serving in some official position. Others say no, likewise is just continuing the idea that there needs to be character requirements in regard to a woman, and this is they fall on the side of a deacon's wife. Again, Interpret that how you will, but that's the debate. A third consideration is that the passage, if you go back a paragraph, doesn't give requirements for the wives of the elders. So some use that as evidence, say, see, this is women who, it doesn't make sense for it to be a wife, because why would Paul give requirements for the wife of an el- of a deacon but not give requirements for the wife of the the elder. And these are the leaders of the church. Isn't isn't their marriage even more important? That's one view. The other side says, well, no, the reason wives aren't listed in the side that says it's wives, they say they're not listed is because the wife of a deacon may help her husband in ministry and in service in a recognized way in the church, but the wife of an elder does not in an official capacity, help her husband lead or teach the church because that is not a role she's to take on. Again, you do with that what you will. The final consideration, and this is a tricky one, is the flow of the passage. In verse eight, he starts discussing deacons and, and he's using all masculine adjectives and uh, um, descriptions. Verse 11, it says, women or wives likewise, he describes them. But then in verse 12, he goes back to the men. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife. It's a very curious shift, and whatever position you take, you go, Paul. What are, What are you doing? What were, why switch like that? Why not get to that near the end? So, what are we going to do here? More important than at FPBC to start, I think we should say that we don't want to make a bigger issue of this than needs to be made, and particularly that matters when you're dealing with other churches. We don't want members going, well, you have women deacons, that's wrong. The Bible should, you know, our church doesn't do that, or vice versa. You have women, de- you, you don't have women deacons, oh, you're stifling women, we do. However, another pastor or another Christian or another church decides to understand this, this topic is a much smaller issue, I would say, than how a church feels about a woman pastor, because this is not as clear as that. You don't have some reference to to creation and repeated principle in the rest of of the New Testament. Here at FABC, we've decided that we will allow for women or female deacons. That doesn't mean we're looking to fill a quota as if we have to have, you know, even amounts or anything like that. We are looking at work that needs to be done and people who are willing and qualified to do that work. So if there's a person that we feel is capable of assisting in some area, and they have a qualifying character, we have no problem naming that woman as a deacon. At the same time, it's helpful, I think, to say that we're also not going to force a woman to take a title that she prefers not to have. So if you personally feel like, no, I just would rather affirm deacons and keep men on there, that's all right, we're not gonna force that. If you're already serving in some official capacity, and we believe you're deacon qualified, but you prefer not to use the title, I don't think we're gonna force that issue. Way more important than the title you take is the character you exemplify. That's the focus of this passage. We want people who represent Jesus Christ. So we got to continue this discussion. What are the requirements? As, you, as we go through the requirements for the women, we realize that it's really no different. He's just repeating them from a feminine side. They all, have a reflect, they all reflect what we've just read for the men. Let's go through this pretty quickly. Speaking of the women, Paul says, first of all, in verse 11, they must be dignified. Same word he used in verse eight when he started talking about deacons. It's a word that talks about seriousness. It's a word that is connected to maturity. This is an important reminder to everybody, but I think even for women, because our world, our culture exalts youthfulness, flippancy. The Bible, on the other hand, prizes wisdom, Godliness. Proverbs thirty one thirty says, Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. If you want a church that showcases the, the glory of Christ, if you want a church that leads people to know Him, you don't need a bunch of young women parading their beauty. You want women who stand out for holiness and for righteousness. Next on the list, Paul says the woman should be not slanderers. This is a woman who knows how to control her tongue. She's not a gossip. She's not using her words to, to tear others down. She speaks to edify, like Ephesians 4 says. She speaks to build up. And what's interesting here is that the Greek term for slandering, the adjective is diabolos, which more often is translated as the devil. You don't want diabolical women, or men for that matter, serving in recognized positions in the church. James tells us about the power of the tongue. And it should be a fearful thing to know that that tongue can be used by even by Satan to ruin and harm a church. So the women, like the deacons, are to be dignified, not slanders. Number three, he says, sober-minded Paul used the same word for elders back in verse 2. It means a woman who's not given to alcohol, any other controlling substance. It's the same idea he mentions in, for the men in verse, verse 8 when he says not addicted to much wine. The final qualification of verse 11, he says, is faithful in all things. And this is reflecting the idea we covered last time of a man being tested. Whether it be a man or a woman, you want someone in this position who is trustworthy. Not just on Sundays, not just in certain areas of their life, not just in certain seasons of their life. They're faithful in all. Those are the requirements he gives in verse 11. The deacon is to be dignified, self-controlled with their tongue, self-controlled with alcohol, and trustworthy. And then as we come to verse 12, he gives us more lists. And again, think through this for your life. Even You can't say, well, I don't want to be a deacon, so I get to live however I want. That's not going to honor Christ. Look at this list and say, where am I? How am I honoring Christ? Verse 12, he continues. It goes back to the men, but again, it applies to everyone. He says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. Literally, in the Greek, it's a one woman man. And what that points to is sexual purity. This is a person who is devoted to God's design for romance and for intimacy. Christ will not be honored by either a womanizer or a flirt using church to gain attention in a carnal way. Christ is to be on display in our marriages and in our churches. And the last thing in verse 12, the husband of one wife, and then it says, managing their children and their own households well. We saw something similar in the requirements for the elders. I don't think Paul is absolutely mandating that a deacon has to be married and has to have kids. I think that's simply Paul's assumption. That was the norm of that day. People got married, the singleness rate was not what it is today. But the point I think he's making is that if you want to know if a man is worthy of serving in a recognized position, look at his home, look at his family. How does he lead them? How does he manage them? Spiritually, financially, relationally, what kind of leader is he? Even if a man is not an elder, that doesn't mean he's not allowed to have any leadership in the church. When you are the recognized servant of some area in the church, typically that means you have leadership. You're gonna be in charge of some people who may help you. There's probably some connection to the budget. You're giving direction to others. And there is, we all know, a bad way to lead people. And there's a Christ-honoring way to lead others. So how a man or how a woman leads in his or her home is a good indication of how he's going to lead in the church. If you take anything away from this lesson, you know, what did we talk about? It was about deacons. Well, yes, we talked about deacons, but the point is, everyone who serves Christ is to, who serves in the church is supposed to be serving Christ. I serve in the church, or I serve my church because I serve Christ. That's what the Corinthian church had forgotten. They came in, and, and remember, they're, they're, they were fighting over who gets more attention, who speaks louder in the prayer gathering, because they made it about themselves instead of about Christ. Christ said we are to serve by the strength that he supplies. We're to serve for his glory. So way more important than any earthly skill or ability Christ is going to be honored by your righteousness and by your integrity. That's how you serve Christ. And with that, we come to the final section for today. That is the discussion of the reward of the deacons. Talked about the responsibility, their servants. Talked about the requirements, character, integrity. Now the reward. And this is what Paul turns to in verse 13. This is how he concludes his discussion of the topic, and it's interesting to think about why he would include this. It's possible that he anticipated men and women saying, you know, I see the list there, and I don't think I wanna be a deacon. Because once you make me a deacon or an elder, I'm in a fishbowl. And they told us that in seminary. Guys, get used to it, you live in a fishbowl. You're, you're, you're serving in leadership. So maybe people in the church would say, ew, that's a lot. I don't wanna be held to this, artific- this high standard. Everyone's watching my life. I'm not doing that. Another possibility would be people who were serving as faithful men and women, serving in the church, but maybe they felt ignored or minimized. Because all they did was set up things or tear down things or clean things. And so they were minimized in the eyes of the world, but not receiving their proper um, praise from God and from the church whatever Paul has in mind he wants to motivate people to serve and and as pastors that's our heart to motivate people to serve to model it and to motivate you to do it whether you're named as a deacon or not Christ wants you to serve you have to have that mentality you come to church the moment you park your car the moment you get out of your car I'm here to serve Christ I'm here to serve my church with a handshake with a hug with a prayer formally or informally Christ wants you to serve him and to serve his church And that's more than just Sundays. And so you might ask, like any little kid would ask, well, why? What's in it for me? That's what Paul answers in verse 13. He says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Two benefits. But there's a condition. It's not just those who serve. He says those who serve well. Not a good thing to serve and not do it well. But if you serve Christ and if you do it well, what's the reward? Number one, you gain esteem in the eyes of the church. You gain esteem in the eyes of the church. It sounds weird at first because Christ calls us to be humble. Christ calls us to kill the pride in our hearts. But that doesn't mean all attention is sin. Christ drew people's attention to those who demonstrated faith. When people work hard as unto the Lord, they gain attention. You you go somewhere and someone does a good job, they stand out to you. People notice. And so when Paul says you're gaining a good standing, I think he's talking about a respect and an honor that is gained in the eyes of the church. We want a church that recognizes good work. As a parent, I want to be able to take my kids and say, look at her, or look at him. Look at the way they serve. Look at their joy. Look at the way they honor Christ. Look at the way they respond to difficulty. They're putting Christ on display. And when someone is is honored in some way, in the end, we're not exalting that man or that woman so they can boast about their service. We're pointing others to them because they're faithfully pointing people to Christ. Paul didn't have a problem with attention. He didn't have a problem with people following him. His problem was when their attention ended at him. So people were saying, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in Paul's camp. He's a better teacher than Apollo, or Peter. Paul said, no, 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 be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. So when you serve well as a servant of Christ, people will notice and Christ through you will be glorified all the more. A faithful servant gains esteem in the eyes of the church. And secondly, he earns confidence in his own faith. He earns a greater assurance of his salvation. Look at the end of verse 13. He gains great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Some of you might have this idea that, you know, people tell me to serve. I see people who I I wish I could help them or help out with the kids or help out with the bread, but I just, you know, I feel like I'm not at that level yet. I I gotta be some super Christian and then I can serve the church. Or, you know, I wanna call my friend and pray for them over the phone, but, you know, I need prayer too and I, I got problems in my life. But that's not the message of the Bible. Christ would say, serve him now and your faith will increase. That's part of how you grow. You know, it's like saying, I wish I had really big muscles and I can go to the gym and work out. Well, you're never going to make it to the gym. He used to call us pencil necks in high school. If you're a floppy, pencil neck, skinny, you know, guy, and you go, I, 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 when I get real big muscles, then I'll go to the gym and work out. It doesn't work. It, it's counterintuitive. You have to go. That's the point. You need to serve to grow. As you serve, Christ will confirm your faith. And, 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 and you got stuff you're dealing with. Everyone does. But as you serve, Christ will use your work to help you battle through fear and doubts and sin. If you belong to Christ, he puts you to work. And you're not gonna see, you know, you know I, I, I don't, I, I, I'm not gonna tell you to go look for some writing on the wall or some sign that says, here's how you must serve. You th- look around and see what you wanna do. Christ will show you and just do something, serve in a way to strengthen our church. And it's been such encouragement to me to see not just Sunday mornings, but Sunday mornings, for example, people coming to serve, to serve one another, to serve the kids. People show up. The music team is here at seven o'clock. Nobody sees them because they need to practice. The kids' teachers are back there. They're getting ready for class. They're teaching kids. The little ones are being watched by, they're not teachers, but they got to run around with these kids. There's people teaching and serving with the youth. There's people setting up tables, people cutting bread early in the morning. It's a joy to me to see that because if they're doing it with the right heart, they're serving Christ. Christ said, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. We're serving Christ in serving one another. So it's a a joy for me to see that happening. It encourages me. Outside of Sundays, I hear people saying, I went to go visit that person in their home. I went to go visit that person in the hospital. Someone says, oh, so-and-so called me. God is using that, and he's using that not just to bless the people you're ministering to, but he's blessing you, the one who's who's doing it. You grow as you give your time and energy to serve Christ. If you serve well, and I would say as deacon or not, as you serve well, you gain great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. He strengthens you as his worker. So this is such an amazing Display of God's mercy and love and joy because we don't need to be rewarded. We have eternal life. Jesus said, he said in Luke, when you're done, you're a slave. When you're done, you say, I've only done what I was supposed to do. You don't deserve a thank you. But God rewards us nonetheless. Even in this life, God is the one who empowers you for service and he rewards you because he loves you. And so my prayer through this little series that we've done and thinking through elders and deacons is that God would strengthen us as a church corporately and individually as we seek to serve Jesus Christ with excellence in all that we do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you because you've given us um, your design. We thank you because in the generations you've given us pictures of men and women who serve faithfully to, to hand out a cup of coffee, to serve a piece of bread, to hug children and teach them and encourage them in the truth, to, to teach youth, to provide um, outings for, for the youth to connect and grow together, to serve with music. And there are many more areas of ministry that that maybe even haven't begun yet but will strengthen us as a church. We pray you open our eyes to those and you bring the right people into those positions. Thank you for the unseen things that happen, doors that get fixed, chips in the wall that get fixed or painted. We don't see these things but they're for your glory. We pray you would bless those who give their efforts to serve. We thank you for them and for the examples that they are. Strengthen us, Lord. Help us elevate people, not because, not using the standards and the criteria of the world, but to elevate people because they're servants of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name and for his glory. Amen.